I'm Alex Stone, former military service member and law enforcement officer, now CEO of Echelon Protected Services, one of the fastest growing private security firms on the West Coast. And this is Ride Along. where our guests and I witness firsthand the issues affecting our community. I believe our proven method of enacting meaningful change through compassion and understanding is the best way to make our streets a safer place and truly achieve security through community. My name is Eli Saslow. I'm a staff writer for the New York Times. I live in Portland and I'm writing about Echelon and what they do. Welcome back to The Ride Along. I'm Alex Stone, your host. Our guest tonight is Eli Saslow. He is a journalist for the New York Times. And uh, he's here to actually kind of do something a little bit unique and different. He's going to be really interviewing me. We've done this a couple of times with other media personalities. And I think that this guy is one of the, probably the top tier um, uh, journalist that I've encountered. Um, he also, that. yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm not just saying that he, he actually does a really good job. You, you've won the Pulitzer, uh, Pulitzer prize twice I have in yeah. journalism. Yep. Yeah. Thanks. And so that's, that's seen, seen as seen as a, a pretty, uh, substantial, uh, type of prize, right? Yeah. Uh, within journalism, it's, it's sort of the big prize, but, um, you know, I, I've, I've won that prize basically for doing like deeply reported embedded work where mm-hmm. I write about, you know, how places are dealing with the big issues in the country, which is how we met, because I think you guys right now are very much at the forefront of some of the big issues in the country and, and working on them here in Portland. So really, I just appreciate you letting me tag along and spend time kind of watching and observing and learning about yeah. what you guys are doing. So you're not a fly-by night journalist. I'm not a fly-by night journalist. And, which, and we're not, I don't mean that as a pejorative, Sure, but you're paid to spend time on one topic versus other journalists who are paid to meet deadlines with a variety of topics. Sometimes totally. 10, 20, 30 stories are working at one time. And my, right. my job is, uh, you know, unfortunately become increasingly uncommon in journalism because my job is very true. It's, yeah. it's expensive, right? Like I write eight stories a year and I make a full-time salary. Whereas there are some people whose job is to write, you know, eight blog posts a day. Right. And, and wow. so it's a different, it's That's a very a different kind of thing. It's a lot of writing. Wow. Whereas mine, the stories are long, but at least I don't have to do eight of them a day. Yeah. You know, it's, it's burying in for several weeks at a time to, to hmm. really, uh, invest time and energy in the people that I'm writing about. So I, hopefully I, I really the like that. Nuanced. Yeah, I like that. And sure. I wish we had more of that. I think sometimes, um, there are individuals within media who, because you know, they're, they're meeting a time, they're meeting a lot of quotas and they have, they're restricted on time. So they don't always get the facts right. Yes. And I don't think that they necessarily, they don't want to be known as people who don't get the facts right. Cause they're in journalism, sure. but you just don't have the time. Totally. But it sounds like you have plenty of time. Yeah. And right, I mean, right. and I think a lot of people write from, uh, from a place of assumption basically, or sometimes from a place of stereotype instead of going and actually an unconscious about, bias, possibly yeah, unconscious bias. We'll sure, say this all possibly. Those things. Yes, yeah. definitely. You know, and, and you can't overcome those things unless you go and you talk to people for yourself, you see things yourself. Um, you know, I think in general, like as just as people in the world, it's easy to feel sure about things that you don't know very much about. Mm. Actually, once you start to learn a lot about them, your opinion becomes much more nuanced, right? You start to see things. Well, yeah, a everything's bit differently. nuanced. Everything's yeah, nuanced. True. Yeah. So, 
the main the main goal in my work is to achieve a place of nuance and yeah. to write about things as they really are like mm. by by talking to people on all sides of an issue and really by going there and spending real time yeah. watching things play out for myself you know like like a good documentary does um you know and and i think that's when you really uh achieve stories that allow people to get to to go beyond a place of like assumption and stereotype and actually learn about the real issues so you're a word documentarian yeah, I think that's a pretty good way to describe I like what I, I do. Like well, as a, as a CEO and owner of multiple companies, including um, including a media company, including Echelon, including, including Echelon, um, you know, other tech companies, yep. right? I want to make sure that my audience understands we're not friends. I mean, we're friendly. I like you. you yeah, seem I like very you nice. too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't know each other from, we don't have a long-term relationship. No. Right. Yep. Um, I'm just beginning reporting about yeah. what you guys do now. We just, you know, you, I met you once. through another media contact. Yep. And, and so in, in no way are you here to be biased or unobjective, right? Totally true. Uh, you might see us be, be having some sense of banter or we might have, I might have to protect you. You might even protect me because we're going to go on the streets. Right. But in no way should should the audience feel that you're not here to tell the truth and be objective. Sure. I should say, though, if I have to protect you, we're both in trouble. So <laughs> That's true. Have, yeah. Let's have you yeah. doing the protecting. <laughs> I like that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so I kind of want to leave it open to you to discuss what your goals are, kind of your mission and your goals. Sure. And, and then I want you to feel free to ask, because I don't really want... I want you to remain objective. So I don't really want to interview you. Why don't you interview me? And then afterwards we'll hit the streets and see what's going on. That sounds great. I mean, so, you know, in general, in my work lately, I've been writing a lot about, I think things that you guys and, and, you know, people on your team on the street deal with every day, which is basically like the intersection of the homelessness crisis right now in this country, uh, the fentanyl epidemic and, mm -hmm. and the number of people dying, rising public safety concerns in, in a lot of big cities around the United mm -hmm. States. And, and I wonder for you, when you were starting this, if some of those things were already in mind, if, if th those issues were manifesting in ways that made you realize what the need was, or if some of it has even surprised you over the last few years in terms of what's been happening on the streets and, and what your team is encountering in Portland. So great question. <clears throat> I would say primarily um, that I knew. Yep. Um, when I kind of transitioned in 2016, 2017 and Prior to that, when I was in law enforcement, I was moonlighting in the security field. Okay. And in that time, I had met several other owners of security companies who were telling me, um, yeah, they're having a hard time hiring. And I, would, I was actually at a particular job where I was liaising for a, a large venue, concert venue. I, would, I was their liaison to law enforcement agencies. Right. Right. Like... Uh, we had uh, some talent that was going to be on stage that night. They were on a national tour and uh, an agency came from another jurisdiction out of, from another state. They had a warrant based on a criminal complaint of a sexual assault okay. that happened in a tour bus. Yep. Right. And so, you know, these types of things, and I'm also liaising with local law enforcement as well. And I could hear the, the, the grumblings of the lack of, or the inability to recruit effectively. Yep. And so that, and along with, <clears throat> I was on the board of the Fraternal Order of Police here in Oregon. The FOP or the Fraternal Order of Police is a national fraternal order. It's, I think it's the second, first or second largest unionizer for law enforcement um, uh, officers. So they come in and help you create a union. Yep. To help you protect against your city. Sure. They yeah, say, yeah. They negotiate your contract with yep. you. Yep. 
And with, so, with private security companies or just with, with no law enforcement okay, just in law enforcement. enforcement. So yep. being on the board of the FOP, it was constant. I mean, recruiting had been going down for almost a decade. Wow. And is that because the jobs had become more dangerous? Uh, like people feeling disempowered in their jobs, um, people feeling like they, they, you know, they were working in communities that didn't want them to perform the roles that they were performing. I mean, what were the issues that was, that was driving that? I would say there were a lot of issues. I would say the overarching issue was just the lack of participation in, in, in things that would be considered civic duties or civic groups. Okay. VFW, Eagles Lodge, Elks Lodge, Mason Lodges. All trending all down. All trending down. Right. All trending down, right. Even participation on levels within certain areas of government, um, not, not just governmental bureaus, right, and trying to hire through those bureaus, I think that that was trending down as well in smaller jurisdictions specifically. Yep. Um, and then, you know, we've had a trend of urbanization where people grow up in smaller areas. They only need one or two kids to really stay on the farm, yep. to inherit that farm. The other kids will go to college and get degrees and they go to urban centers. Sure. And so that just all these trends merging together, this convergence of macro trends, yep. I think led to the idea that, you know, I need to work on myself and not when, when you're, when you grow up in a small community and you know that community, you have a sense of civic duty because you're in the community you have an emotional attachment to. Yep. But when you grow up in rural Iowa and then you go to college at Stanford, but then you take a job in Portland in a suburb like Beaverton. Yep. I mean, where's your civic ties? Sure. Right. So uh, to you, come, don't, you don't feel connected. You anymore. don't feel connected. L lack of emotional attachment leads to um, the divestment. Sure. And, and, right. Of time and civic duties. And so uh, to couple that, people are no longer staying in careers for 20 to 30 years at one place. Yep. Right. So they're no longer staying where they originally get their job. They're then taking, well, I'm going to get $12,000 or more a year here. Yep. So there's a lot of free agency. And again, I think all that, all that attacks the ability to build that civic tie, that community group. I think the only people that are retaining these community groups are faith groups. Okay. Right. Yep. And, and so people are staying active in their faith groups, Catholics, you know, right. People like sure. this, they're still connecting there, but they're not connecting to jury duty or the VFW or the Eagles Lodge, these things. Right. right. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I also wonder like, you know, you've, you've seen some of these issues from a few different vantage points, right? You were in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. uh, I've read some about that. I know there's some, some parts it's of out it there. that are, it's out there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I know it was a, it was a really um, challenging and in some ways uh, pretty horrific experience, but it was I, definitely a learning experience. Yeah. yeah. But I, yeah. I wonder, you know, and you said you were doing some moonlighting even then, right? So you had, oh, you yeah. had a sense of, of the private security industry a little bit, but I, I wonder, mm. especially because, you know, we've talked, we've been talking about assumptions and how, what I am often trying mm. to do is get people beyond assumptions. What, what your notions were at that point about what private security was and, and, um, you know, as you were just beginning to moonlight when you were in law enforcement, what your yeah. sort of perception of the industry was, um, and, and some of the problems with it or the flaws with it or the strengths of it. So Excellent question. <laughs> you're, Thank you. You're I an like investigator. That. <laughs> That's right. Investigative yeah. journalism right here. I can here. do this all day. Yeah, I know. I love <laughs> it. So, um, yeah. So or, or, or when I initially stepped into the security realm 
I had a sense, and I think the sense is common for most people coming out of law enforcement going into that industry, is that you you see it's it's a false dichotomy. Right. We get trapped by this false dichotomy. People coming out of law enforcement going to, into the security world, and that is that there's really two tiers of security: observe and report. Yep. And that's for people who don't have experience. Sure. Lack experience, or you know these things. Right. And then there's the other industry or the other part of the industry, which is it's a kind of a law enforcement esque, right? Or law enforcement light model. Right. And that's what I saw. Those two models. Yeah. In fact, I was hired to be a liaison to law enforcement. Yeah. They wanted someone who understood laws who could, who could determine whether that band, whether law enforcement should get involved because does a fight between a band members, is that civil or sure. is that criminal? Yep. What does it? When does it arise to a criminal level that that a a, a venue would, could possibly uh, be sued or have some type of um, you know concern that that there would be you know an issue like that? Sure. And then they would be you know they would want to get law enforcement involved. Yep. And if yeah, they yeah, didn't, yeah. that could be seen as bad and right. Yep. And so and, and yeah. just to interject for a quick sense of perspective, so say in a city like Portland. What percent of, of private security or security jobs are sort of more that observe and report? And what percent are like the, you know, uh, sort of law enforcement light as, as you, you yeah. termed it nicely? That's a really good question. Uh, so in Oregon, there's around 30,000 security guards. Huge number. Huge. Huge. For sworn officers in Oregon, it's like 4,500. Wow. That's, it, that's amazing to think yeah. about. And I would say 90, 85 to 90%, well, maybe 80, 80%. The numbers are hard to find. Sure. Because if you drive a, a, um, a armored vehicle, yep. right, and you're a guard and you have a firearm, uh, w- with the Department of Labor statistics, you're considered a basically a driver, a teamster. Okay. And so the security realm is difficult to gather statistics on for this So it's reason. probably even bigger than the 30,000 in some ways. Uh, no, that's people who actually have an who have license who is got licensed it. by the state of Oregon okay. to provide security. Okay, got now it. there are a lot of moonlighters. Sure, lot, you know, and we'll t- I I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but you know, to a lot of bouncers, this is yep. very common to yeah, yeah not have a certificate. And so, but yet in that thirty thousand, I would assume at least fifteen percent are doing that law enforcement model. Yep. Versus the observe and report. So the observe and report is is the lion's share. I mean, that's oh, that's yeah. by far the most. And yeah, it's really a byproduct of the insurance uh, comp, uh, insurance policies. Okay, right. The insurance company is like, hey, well, you need to have security. Yep, and 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 when we think about observe and report, uh, you know. This is probably my own stereotype, but I have an idea in my head of like somebody sort of standing in a uniform, maybe outside a building or or outside a that's right a club or a restaurant, uh, often unarmed, maybe sometimes armed, maybe with a, a taser, some something like in the middle, and mm-hmm. and basically mm-hmm. just that person's job is they're looking to see if something bad happens, and then they themselves are calling the police. Is that essentially what that yeah, role is? They observe. And they report. Right. They they call nine one one, and that so the reason that model doesn't work is because the the lack of emergency services no longer allows that model to function healthily. Right. Healthy way. right. Because they call, and oftentimes nobody can respond, yeah. no matter what. Yeah. A- another part of why that model really fails is there have been a lot of recent lawsuits that the the companies are are sued because they don't act. Yep. 
And so they'll say like, you know, if, when you're wearing a uniform, there's what is called implied authority. So even though you're not law enforcement, there, there's implied authority. Right. And that means that people are going to assume that you are going to act. Yeah. Even in security, you don't have a duty to act, unlike law enforcement that does have a duty to act. Got it. Right? Yep. And so there was a case up in Washington State. And in Washington State, there was a, a very famous, typical unarmed service handling a transit contract. Okay. A group of individuals ran and beat up a lady, stole a purse, she dies. And it happens in front of the security guards. Oh, jeez. And they don't attempt to actually stop the assault. Okay. They just, they just call 911 and okay. watch. And so what happens what, what, during that situation, everyone sued everybody else. Yep. All the people involved in, in that guarding company lost their jobs. They sued and they won. Yep. Because they said because well, technically they were doing their jobs. Hey, we did our job. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then, and then maybe the, they did not exceed expectations. Correct. But they, they, well, they were concerned. They observed and they tried to report. They were concerned they would get sued if they did anything above and beyond right. the contract. And to, and that used to be the case. Yep. And so, the the victim, the family of the victim sued, and everyone had to pay, even the guarding company. Yep. And then the guarding company sued the city or the that whoever held that transit contract. Right. And the guarding company won. Wow. Right. Yep. And then the guarding, co then the, the company, the city sued the guarding company and then they won. Yep. And so it was, it, I mean, everyone actually won and then everyone lost at the same time. And so a lot of people are realizing because of these, these lawsuits that it's really not enough to observe and report. In yep. fact, observe and report in Oregon is not even really a security function. Right. Like you can go on a fire watch. I can observe and call police. That's not really a security function. I'm not really doing anything. Sure. A private citizen can do that. So you don't need a, a security certificate to conduct that type of behavior. Right. Yep. Right. And yep. so, it's, yeah. So, so, I mean, obviously then when you were thinking about, you know, building this and what you wanted to do, uh, yeah. I'm sure that like, you know, some of the flaws of that observe and report model were in your head. You knew you wanted to, to create something much more proactive. Not initially. You didn't know initially. Okay. I did not know initially. Yeah. I, you know, I thought because I was prior law enforcement, that when I observed and reported, they, it would be taken more seriously. Sure, something would happen. It would be escalated as a real call. Yep. Because I've done death investigations and sex crimes, and you know, and if I, that eventually dispatch would know who I was, yep. or they would know team members, and you know, hey, and then that's not the case. Yep. And, and were there a few frustrating sort of, you know, uh, learning moments where you realize like this is, basically worthless. Like I don't, I don't want to be doing this, this, this observe and report model. I mean, early on when you didn't yet, yet know, do you remember times where you just, you know, you, you would, you would call or you would report and it was like, nobody's home. Yeah. All the time. Every single time. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say it was a, it was one particular incident. I would say <laughs> it was all the incidents. It was every <laughs> single incident. And then, uh, you know, the straw broke the camel's back. Yep. Right. And it, yeah, I mean there, and you know, to the, and I, I don't want to talk about any particular, well, we'll just say Portland. Sure. We're in a, we're in a lot of other jurisdictions, yep. but in Portland, they're only at around 35% force strength. Right. So the FBI has an FBI number, this many per capita, and they're at one third of that recommended amount of policing per capita in an urban environment. They're only at one third of that amount. Wow. So they're, the officers are literally, they have an MDT or a system in their car with a screen yep. with all their calls. Yep. And they're literally eight calls down. 
And so, I mean, what are you going to do? You right. have a security guard that says that he saw someone punch somebody. Yep. Okay. Well, I got six shootings. Yep. Yeah. I mean, what do you do? You know what I mean? Sure. But you can't, you and can't I'm do not it saying that we need more law enforcement. Sure. I want people to be clear. I'm not this gung ho pro law enforcement guy. Right. I think that we need a multidisciplinary approach. I've been writing about this for years. I think that law enforcement needs to change and, and it's a paradigmatic change that needs to occur within law enforcement, similar to what happened with the fire departments yep. when they pulled the ambulances into the firehouse and they all became EMTs. I think a lot of this has to change. Yep. I think a lot of burdens have been placed upon law enforcement unduly, un, unnecessarily. There's no one else to take that that mental those mental health calls after we shut down all the state institutions after O'Connor v. Uh, right, right, the O'Connor case in 1972. So we we kind of got stuck with in law enforcement. We got stuck with all these responsibilities. Sure. And really, we were never supposed to have these. Yep. Orderlies and doctors and nurses and medics and there are so many things that we do. And I think that we need to we need to rethink how we do law enforcement. Yep. So I mean, you know people probably uh, see some of this right in, in these mm -hmm. kind of kind of videos and, and particularly when they're out watching the work you guys do on the street. But, but I guess it would be helpful for me, even from like a, a macro level to think about like, so you step into this, basically this vacuum, I would say like this empty space a little bit where uh, you know, in, in your company where you have, so police officers, they have eight calls waiting, you know, on their, yeah. on their screens that they yeah. can't get to. Uh, ambulances, at least, you know, in Portland, the city you referenced, often taking a very long time to respond or sometimes the city being at level zero with nobody able to respond, uh, increasing mental health needs, basically a, a time where you know, the demand for these services has gone up. Um, the strains on, Correct. you know, small businesses, parts of, of the community have gone mm -hmm, up, mm -hmm. but the ability of, of law enforcement to respond for a number of reasons has gone down. Right. So, so yeah. it's like kind of this perfect storm where like they're, you know, you're, you're going in and you're providing some version of, of, you know, part of that solution. And, and I guess I wonder if you, was it, was it all sort of learned experience doing the job? Was it conversations with people? Was it looking at other models of like, how do we proactively step into this space? I mean, how did you start to figure out, you know, I want to build a company where we have, you know, 24 hour patrols in parts of the neighborhood where we're, you know, we're not just standing in front of, of places that hire us, but we're, we're working in whole neighborhoods and we're yeah. Narcanning people and we're doing like, how, how'd that, how'd you land on that model and how much time did that take? It took about six months. Okay. Uh, my business partner, Reedker was, uh, integral in, in that development process. But basically, basically we said we need to keep doing what we're doing, but we need to pause and really take time to really think about this. We need to take a deep dive, stay down long right. and think. And during that six month period, we looked at like probably six different things, right? One, we looked at what is law enforcement really? What is law enforcement? Right? Yep. And then we looked at what is private security? What is that? Right. And then we looked at those kind of led to other, other areas. So can we looked at, can private security be law enforcement? Right. You have law enforcement who have to conduct investigations and arrest people. Right. Now all those tiny little things are, small civil rights violations that are legal, ethical, and moral. We stop a car because they don't use an indicator or turn signal. So we're 
you know, violating someone's rights for 12 minutes to ID them, give them a warning or a ticket, let them be on their way, right? But all that is escalatory because you're building, if I pull someone over for very very something small, yep. but I, I detect an odor of an alcoholic beverage emitting from the vehicle, well, you're then going to the next level. That, that, I, that is an extended stop, right? which is a, an extension of that constitutional violation, yep. right? And then if I determine that there's probably, based on questioning, that something else that they might have drugs or alcohol in their system, that then turns into field sobriety tests, yep. which is another, another extension. If those tests indicate that that individual is likely to be under the influence of an intoxicant, well, that's likely going to end up in an arrest, which is another a continuance of that rights violation. Sure. Right. Yep. And so what we realized is security d should never act like law enforcement, which is crazy because like 10 to 15% of the industry is acting like law enforcement. Right. And, and the other, you know, 80, 85% is standing and reporting or for the most part. Observing and reporting. Observing and reporting. Yeah. And so we said, hey, okay, so if we don't want to, and sometimes you have to make an arrest. If someone like is on a property and they're committing a major crime, you, you have to take them into custody so law enforcement can take them into custody. Right. I mean, there are periods, there is a little bit of overlap, but primarily that action is not a rights violation. It's actually protecting someone's property rights right. or person's rights, right? So. If someone attacked you right now, I might take them into custody and call cops, but really I, I help save your life. Sure. And so saving your life is, is a civil rights action. Right. Does that make sense? So I have, there are minority groups that hire our company because they receive hate crime or they receive um, notifications that they're likely to receive threats and, threats sure. and hate crime against their property, right? And so we take on these contracts and we protect the right of these groups to worship or free speech in public spaces and private spaces. Sure. So what the, a lot of this, what we determined was that as a security company, we're really more like a civil rights organization. Right. Like if we can really hold on to that as a value system and as a, as an anchor, then we're really doing our job and we're doing it and we know why we're doing it. Right. We're not doing it because we think, because we're quote unquote wannabe cops. We're doing it because we want to protect people's rights. Right. And that gives us a sense, and it gives every team member on our team the sense that we're doing something amazing for people. We're, we're protecting people's rights and civil liberties. Yep. And sometimes a lot of people on my team don't agree, we don't always agree with what rights are right. Sure. This is why we have Supreme Court sure. and district courts and a federal district court and Supreme Courts of states. Um, there, you know, one of my clients has a Planned Parenthood, and they don't call law enforcement when people are harassing the females coming in and out, right? Right. They call us. Yeah. And so sometimes we're protecting all these rights, and so that's really what we went for. But we also did. We also discovered that as a security company that's in a neighborhood our job should be to decrease the amount of criminal um, occurrences. Right. But, we, but not to do that through the law enforcement model. Right. So it was like the fourth thing we looked at. Okay. Because we, don't, we want crime to decrease sure. because we're protecting people. Right. We want, we want to protect your right to own a vehicle. Sure. We want to protect your right for you to go outside and yep. enjoy private space. Right. Right. And so 
how do you do that? How do you, if you're not law enforcement and you don't want a law enforcement model, how do you decrease crime? Right. Right. Well, we realized the way you decrease crime is through community engagement. As engagement goes up in a neighborhood, the criminal element will consider that more risky to conduct business in that area. And that criminal element will decrease and therefore crime occurrences decrease. Yeah. And so what we said, well, how do we get, how do we get people in the streets in order to, to, to make that shift? And again, it's like the civil rights movement. So when we wanted a change in civil rights, what did we do? We took it to the streets. Right. Right. This is why protesting is actually a very effective form of redress against the government. Because it, you're owning space. And in that, in that, during the ownership of that space, it's very hard for entities to commit crimes or civil rights violations or any type of abuse because you're owning it with witnesses. So we said, we're going to engage the community and get the community out. Sometimes we even do barbecues. Like we did a barbecue on July 4th. We fed 517 uh, persons in a very disaffected area. Yeah. People living on the street. Right. But when that happened our call volume for that entire district plummeted during an extremely hot day on the summer, on a summer day when we would typically get 20, 30 calls, we got five. Yep. And that's because people had something positive to do. Correct. They had a place to be. And they were engaged. Other people around, right? And they were engaged with people that have eyeballs. Yep. And, and, and right. when you say your call volume, I mean, is that, uh, those are clients who recognize, Hey, something's happening at our building, outside our business, yeah. whatever else. And they person call. a is punched person B in the face right. in front of that business. They're blocking the door. They're fighting, physically fighting. And I have customers who can't leave the store. Right. Yep. Can you come check it out? And they're calling you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I guess now, so that day less, less incidents occurred. Right. Cause as community engagement increased incident levels dropped. Yep. Yeah. So, so is that, I mean, Taking it to the streets, as, as you put it, like sort of becoming increasingly proactive and, and going out into neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Is that over the last year, two years? I mean, how long how long ago did you guys really go all in? So on this that is something direction? I've always done. Yep. I've always been I, I used to work with nonprofits twenty years ago, a long time ago. And then I did it a lot in the military. And what what I've learned throughout my short life is that when you engage communities, um, it's that is de escalatory. Right. Right. When you, when you, when, when community increases that, uh, that deescalates an entire community. So rather than trying to deescalate one person on one incident, we're deescalating an entire community by creating community, by creating a network of relationships and friendships that give the opportunity for communication to occur for mass deescalation. Sure. Right. The UN does this. Right. Um, well, that's, that's like the fifth thing we looked at overseas operations. We looked at USAID. We looked at Band-Aid. We looked at how you, how groups like NATO or UN step in and deconflict areas like Rwanda. Right. Right. Yeah. And now you have Rwanda. You know, sure, you might have you might, in these areas you might have some ethnic issues, but there isn't a complete genocide going on. Sure. Yeah. Right? yeah. Like in Serbia and Bosnia Herzegovina. So you have all these areas, right? And if you apply the right pressure. And you force community into an area, not force, but if you support sure. right, community in, in an area, it, you, the, the results are actually dramatically, um, they're, it's amazing. Yep. It I, really is. I, I wonder, I mean, just because it is, um, you know, there's something novel in that approach. If it's been hard, like, 
if explaining that to your, to your clients is challenging or if they intuitively get it or if they have to see first. So like, say, you know, say for instance, I'm a, you know, I'm a, a small pizza shop in uh, a certain neighborhood of Portland that's yeah. having, having a hard time. Yeah. And my, you know, my, my windows have been broken six times mm-hmm. in the last, uh, in the last year. And, you know, I've got people sleeping outside and it's detracting from the customer experience. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I say, you know what, I've heard great things about Echelon. I'm going to, I'd love to work with them. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I can imagine people who weren't used to this model, they might say, well, you know, we, we've hired you and you're, I, I see your, your guys spending a lot of time in this encampment that's six blocks away and doing a lot of work there, but you know, nobody's standing in front of the, the pizza shop enough, right? Like, I, I wonder if you, if you have to explain this to those places or if, if they, if they yeah. get it or they see in the results, I don't know. So you have to do both. Yeah. You, you have to explain it, but they also see the results and, and you're always, there's always a balance between how much quote unquote nonprofit NGO style work you're due. You, yep. We perform versus taking calls and being effective and showing up in three or four minutes. Sure. So to get back to the business model, and this is really the sixth thing, what we realize is security isn't security unless it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Right. In America, we have a seven and a half minute response time for law enforcement. In Portland, it's around 15 minutes. Okay. Right. So if there's an incident and we can't respond in under seven minutes, yep. then we're failing. Right. Right. Because in order for a community to be engaged, you have to have short response times. Yep. And so that's why we went with the district model. The district model uh, helps, and it's, there's an economy of scale. Number one, it's cheaper for the client, but number two, it provides 24 hour, seven day of service. So in the explanation of, to get back to the question, I had a, I had to chase that rabbit. Folks. Sure. Yeah. Sometimes absolutely. there are rabbits that need to be chased. I get it. There's carrots that have to be <laughs> bartered with and holes to be dove into. So to get back to your original question, when, when you go to explain to the client, the overall business model, they get it. Yep. Because these are very, these all make sense. I can't tell you how many people said, well, I just need security at night. I don't need security during the day. My windows are only being broken at night. Right. And I was like, yeah, but the person breaking your windows is probably walking by your business like five times during the day. Sure. And they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, well, and you're going to just contact them during the day? And I said, yeah, because we want to build community. And it's hard to build community in the middle of the night when a guy's coming up to you in a uniform and they look all scary. Sure. Right? And so co- daytime is for community building and nighttime is for protection. Protecting property rights, protecting person's rights. You don't have the right to punch this guy in the face because I'm here to help him. Right. And so without that balance, without that daytime, nighttime balance, it's impossible to do, to, to get the results you need because you can't deliver the entire service. Yep. So in the neighborhood that we're about to go see old town, old town, old town, Portland. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a phenomenal neighborhood. I also live here. Um, but also a neighborhood that's kind of been at the epicenter of a lot of the challenges Mm -hmm. we've Mm -hmm. been talking about. Um, so in, in a neighborhood like that, who are your clients? How many do you have? What kinds of places are they? Um, what sort of diversity of kind of city life are you guys, uh, representing over there? Great question. So we have a lot of clients about probably 70 clients, right? And some of them, you know, we don't always just take the big clients, but you got to take everybody and you have to make it affordable for everybody or it doesn't work. If right. you can't get the, the entire community engaged, it takes a longer time to deliver results and, and 
it's harder to maintain that that level of safety. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, we have clients that are small time businesses, you know, you know, mom and mom shops or mom and pop shops, whatever you want to call them. Right. right. And so, you know, we have like uh, these little delis. We got, uh, you know, I don't know, like a museum or something. Right. Sure. Very little foot traffic and they pay a very minimal amount. Um, but they're engaged, right? Their clients are engaged and they're looking out their windows and they're making calls. Yep. Right. So we have, I mean, we got a snitch on every block, <laughs> but sure. I mean, but we do, we have multiple snitches yep. on every block. Cause right? I mean, old town's not, we're not talking about a huge neighborhood. If you have 70 places in that, you know, that's, well, that's we, a lot of coverage in one block. We could have five clients. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's how it works is, sure. you know, you have a little, this tiny little salon. Or in some buildings, you have multiple businesses officing out of that building, yep. and we'll have those as individual clients. Yep. Right. And it's really, but when they're when, let's say in one building we have three or four clients, but they're all going to be parking at different times, right? Because they all have different work schedules, and so they're all filtering that intelligence, that communication, that those whatever's going on in the neighborhood, that intelligence is filtering up, right? And it's allowing us to then respond to calls and identify people and stay on top of everything. Yep. Yeah. It's real. It's feeding in real time. Totally. I mean, this is probably hard to quantify. And, and so I guess I'm more asking for a sense than anything beyond that. But 10 years ago in Portland, say, um, or 10 years ago, really in, you know, Albuquerque or Seattle or any, yeah. of, any of the other places where you guys are, yeah. are working. Um, I guess, and I again could be wrong, but my own assumption would be that the nail salon in Old Town 10 years ago didn't maybe need this in the same way. Like wasn't the need no. wasn't as high. No, the it, need's higher now. Yeah, and, and I guess that's what I'm asking is, is you know, it, like Portland, those 70 places in yeah. Old Town. Um, Chicago's always been Chicago. Sure. Since the Chicago mob. Right. I mean, let's just be honest here. New York's always been New York. Um, a lot of things. So what people don't realize is crime. Crime is cyclical. Obviously, I, you know this, but crime is cyclical. It's generational, right? Yep. It it tracks population growth. Um, it also tracks um, the growth and of industries, right? Um, and so, in Portland, what you had was what I liked. What, what I loved about Portland was it was really what in Europe you'd call a village. Right. It wasn't really a city. It was a city, but it was a city that was like pristine and perfect and low crime. And it was almost like a cathedral village, like in Scotland or like in France somewhere, right? Yep. Kind of far off from the big cities where the, the um, you know, professional criminal elements were not aware of. There was no one out there running numbers. There was, I mean, right. like taking bets, right? Yeah, yeah. There was no one out there in that game doing that thing, part of that life you know, feeding off of the population. Right. And over the past 10 years, Portland has graduated from that pristine cathedral village that you would find out in the middle of the Netherlands to a major city. Right. With major city problems like New York, Houston, LA, sure. Atlanta, Miami, right? You have legitimate, when I went through my gang training, right, in law enforcement, I was told by my instructor, that there are no nationally recognized gangs that operate in in the state of Oregon. Wow. Meaning like sure you have you have you have the biker sure, club. Sure, some local factions, but not 
Yeah, you have the biker club that that lost to the California Biker Club, and they were forced to move up here in the '60s, and this okay. is their territory now. Right. And they're they're the pre, they're the head of the council of clubs, and you have you have that, but you don't have like a street gang that's a rolling '60s street gang that's paying dues to a '60s Crip gang or right. some type of gang in L.A. Yeah, like that wasn't occurring, right? And they weren't they weren't sending people in to give advice or there there was no ebb and flow of information either. Right. It was just people just said, Oh, rolling sixties, that's cool. I'm gonna call myself a rolling sixty. And they were little guys got together and they were rolling sixties. Yep. But they really weren't. Yep. Now you have legitimate criminal organizations that have moved in to Oregon and have claimed that territory. Yep. And part of that is um traffic. It's easier to travel than it was 30, 40 years ago. Sure. Right? A lot of that is the policies that um, have occurred over those several decades. Yep. And, right. and and in, I mean, in Old Town, for instance, this mm-hmm. neighborhood that we're going to go see here in a few minutes, what what percent of not just the calls that you get, but I guess like your your client's concerns trace back to, you know, these sort of epidemics of the moment that I was talking about at the very beginning um, and that I spend a lot of time writing about, mm-hmm. like the homelessness crisis uh, the fentanyl and sort of opioid mm-hmm. epidemic writ large, um, the mental health situation right now in the country, like how much of, of what you're hearing about in Old Town traces back to that and to the organized crime around those things? So that's a really good question. <clears throat> I think the majority of people that make calls are people that are, whether they, I don't think a lot of them know that they're reporting crimes or not crimes. Right. Because I think the average citizen isn't rocking around with a criminal code in their head. Sure. Kind of like probably you are now and I am. Right. Because of my training. I think what they're reporting is abnormal behavior or what they perceive to be abnormal behavior. Which is often probably mental health crises. Yeah. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, there's a guy, he's been digging in this backseat of this car and the window looks broken. Right. I don't know if he owns the car. I don't know if he broke into the car. Sure. It just seems odd. Yep. Right. Those are the typical phone calls. Yep. Oh, there's a guy. He's waiting at the back door of a building. I think he has a tool in his hand. Right. But it could be the handyman. Sure. Actually, I think, gosh, he kind of looks like the handyman, but I don't know. Right. Maybe you should check it out. Yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? Sure. And so they're seeing something that's an abnormal behavior. Right. And that's why calls are so hard to triage and understand. Unless it's like, hey, someone just stabbed someone in the neck. Right. Yeah. And you're like, check in or out. Right. So these abnormal general calls, they're just saying, hey, there's a behavior happening. And I grew up in like, I don't know, West Lynn. And I just moved to downtown Portland like two years ago. And it's really odd. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so to get, I had to chase that rabbit. Yeah. But like to, get, to get back to your answer, like I would say 100% of the calls are, are for this reason. Yeah. Because there are so many, Portland isn't it is a city that has embraced an extreme form of libertarianism when it comes to freedom of speech, freedom of religion. I mean, there was a giant like church rally just the other day. Right. right? I mean, they really allow people to do whatever they want. Right. right. You can do yoga naked. You can. And a lot of, a lot of drug decriminalization as well. Yeah, exactly. Extreme forms of libertarianism. Right. Right. Where there's a uh, marijuana is legal. Uh, narcotics is has been decriminalized on a personal use level. And so when people see things, 
when someone see, like if I grew up and I never saw someone smoke meth and look high, I would call that in as odd behavior. Right. And that's what's happening. Yeah. And this is overwhelming, not just us, but 911 or BOEC or these, these communication centers yep. that deal with these, these issues. And so it's, it's reality. Yeah, like to get back to your answer, get back to your question. It's really everything. Yep. And you know, obviously meth psychosis, all these things, it's always a problem. You know, it's always going to end up in, in some type of call. Yep. Totally. Well, I could sit and talk to you here all day and, and yeah. I probably will. Continue. You're really good at it. I could probably continue yeah, to do that. Like I will over the next week. The New York I'm, Times should give you a podcast. Hey, I, there we go. We've yeah. got a lot of podcasts. I know. A whole audio app. Yeah, you yeah. can promo the audio app. I uh, love it. Yeah. But uh, yeah. And when, when I'm done writing the story about like you guys and what you guys do, that'll be on the audio app. People can listen to it That's instead awesome. of reading it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm also just really excited to go out there and, and, and see mm -hmm. it, you know, and, and watch sort of this, uh, this district model at this moment, um, unfold in, in places where the need is so high. So thanks for letting me tag yeah, along for it. Let's roll out then. Let's go. Sweet. Awesome. Thanks. Yep. See you on the streets. All right. Looking forward to it. So. Where, where do you guys, where's the boundary between the old town and downtown? Broadway. Broadway. Broadway so and what? So Pearl like, District is to our right. This yep. is the Pacific Northwest College of Arts. Old Town is to the left. Okay. And look, here's the guy running a chop shop. Yep. There you go. Are there certain pockets of Old Town that are, uh, that end up producing like more calls and, and more more issues or it's it's pretty yeah. much well spread throughout yeah i would say the transit the mass transit areas yeah because you know the majority of the calls are usually drug related yeah whether it's uh, some type of drug induced psychosis or whether it's people arguing about drugs whether it's a stabbing or shooting about drugs right yeah well you know whatever um and the quickest and easiest way to sell dope is to be on a mass transit line yeah. Whether like Broadway, easy street, you come right off of the, the bridge, boom, you drop in, you can hit another street and drop out. Yeah. Transit, easy, you jump off, you jump off, you jump on, and you're, you're gone. Yeah. Right? Of your calls, how many do you think eventually end up involving police? Or that's pretty rare? I would say what, maybe 2%. Wow. Very. So it's a very small volume. Yeah, we're, we're really taking the calls the de we're, we're taking a lot of de-escalatory calls right we're working on de-escalation yeah and you know and if there's a real crime we're definitely going to call the cops because i mean we're not we're not we're not the police sure right i would say the majority of calls don't warrant a law enforcement response yeah even in 911 yeah right it could be a medical issue now if there's a medical issue hey there's a guy here it looks like he's passed out we take it yeah right i mean we want them to call an ambulance but we're like usually right there yeah so we'll narcan them and emetics will show up and then they'll take them got it and you and your 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 guys stay in until the ambulance arrives like you're narcaning yeah. somebody and then no, yeah. waiting yeah. yeah well you have to stay with them because narcan well, so, and sometimes you need a lot of it i mean sometimes you now, need a lot like, of it but narcan in the human body has a shorter shelf life than the new designer drugs coming out of china got it so you so can, if you Narcan them, they can come out of it. You can think they're okay, and then boom, they're dead. they walk away and find necessarily they overdose wow. again. But the problem is, but you, they're like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, and that it's a vice. 
you can't stop them from leaving, right. but we notify them, hey, I know you think you're good, but I did, I just did chest compressions on you, and you, you were like talking to the ancestors, bro. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you were and, like, and you, you think you were communing with the dead. I mean, your team is Narcanning somebody every day. I, I would think so. I would think so. Sometimes no, um, because again, it's cyclical. Right. What batch is on the street right now? You might get a really. This is an old town. Yeah, this is what what is called the pit. Okay. Not by us, but by people who live here. Yeah. All right, man. So we're no longer in studio. We're actually in the streets. She can get kind of crazy. So you you can walk away at any point. Appreciate you that. You don't have to engage. And remember, we do not have a duty to act. We're just trying to make shit safe. Yep. Okay. You're not wearing a vest. You're cool with that. Yeah. We talked about that. You're gonna. I've got a notebook and a pen. The with pen is the tools and the sword. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Okay, great. We're gonna hook up with Jacobson. Last names only. Okay. We're gonna. We, you're, you'll be able to talk to him, interview him, and you know the area we're going to used to be one of the highest call volume properties uh, before we took it over. Now it's a lot more chill, but the shit could pop off. Okay. Great. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. How long has Jacobson been working with you guys? About two years. Oh, great. Yeah. He's a coordinator, community coordinator. So. He's a you know, supervisor. Hey, hey, Hi. how are you? I'm Eli. Nice to meet you. Great. Cool. What's up, bro? You want to roll? Absolutely. All right. You said that patch. Yeah. In the last. Uh, in month. the last. In the last month, there's been three or four dudes who have required a fair amount of naloxone and CPR to come back to life. Yeah. I mean, what I've heard in in other cities and some here is that also like the average number of doses required has really gone up lately. It's like, gone way up. We start, We stopped carrying the four milligram Narcans, and now we're carrying eight milligram Cloxidos because okay. it takes almost twice as much wow. to get people to come back. And so, and how many of the eight milligrams you ha are you having to hit some of these people with? Um, generally it's two eight milligrams and sometimes a four. Wow. And, and is that, I mean, every neighborhood in the city? Are those three or four concentrated? It's predominantly Old Town and Downtown. Um, every so often you come across one in Goose Hollow, but okay. typically. I was asking Alex about this and, and but I, I mean, you know, you're at the shift meetings and everything else. I mean, would you say that across the company, you guys are Narcanning somebody every day? Probably not every day, but I would say at least two to three times a week okay. it comes up. I think and, our most recent one was on Saturday. Okay. And predominantly Old Town, downtown, like the main... Yeah, predominantly your main areas. Yeah. I'm guessing also occasionally uh, witnessing people who, uh, you know, who, who you're too late to save. Like, is that, has that been, a, has death become a bigger part of it? Or, you or? know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly happy to say that I have not had to have anyone not make it okay. under me yeah. yet. Good. That's great. That's pretty amazing. Um, there's been a couple of dudes who've been, uh, we'll say, circling the drain a little bit. Got it. But we've always been able to get them to come back yeah. after a while. Generally right around the time ambulances show up, they're waking back up. Yeah. So. But it sounds like you guys often are beating the ambulance there. Yeah, well, we come across them. The ambulances don't go out and patrol. They have to be called there. Right. Exactly. So we come across them. Uh, you know, every so often somebody will just kind of point one out and just sort of be like, hey, there's a guy in this parking lot who is just laying here. Yeah, and I would say there's 
because you know everything switched from meth to opiates or synthetic opiates there's so many people in a daze or asleep that few and few people are calling these types of things in i mean they're not really seeing right they're just seeing someone passed out yeah no one really knows if they're going to die or not so right. It's yeah. hard to recognize the yeah. signs of overdose for people who aren't, you know, trained on it. That's why we. That's right. That's why we have so many trainings on it, so well, that we make imagine. sure that we know what we're looking for. Right. It's also become increasingly normalized for like people passing by on the street. They might just not react. It's become so normalized that one of the most recent dudes who I had to give Narcan CPR to, by the time I came across him, he had already been given one dose of Narcan by another homeless person. Oh right. wow. Who carries it for when they overdose? Right. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Did, did, did he travel from that location to a new location? Uh, no, he was just in that parking lot doing his thing, and then the dude fell Some over, and he walked right. over and Narcaned him once, and that didn't work, so he came and got us, who were yeah. standing wow. across the street. So when you go out on patrol, mm -hmm. or like when you're you know, starting your shift, what, like, what do you have on you right now? I mean, Alex has talked about sometimes you guys might be Handing out, handing out a cigarette, it's Narcan, it's like, do you, do you have stuff in your car? So on me, I have uh, cigarettes, I have Narcan and other medical supplies. With me in my vehicle, we have uh, resource totes that are provided to us by loving one another. Uh, and that's got food, it's got um, you know hygiene supplies, we have cases of water that we carry around, um, shelf-stable food, sometimes there's clothing. Sometimes dog um, food. Yeah, you know, we, yeah. we do come across a lot of homeless people who have their pets, and for a lot of them, it's almost more important to ensure that their pet eats than them. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, as bad as it is to say humans can eat dog food. So. That's right. Right. And, and also on you right now, like, for your own personal safety, like, what else are you carrying? Flashlights? Uh, flashlights essential. Um, personal safety-wise, I've got pepper spray and a firearm. Right. Um, I have carried a taser in the past but I feel like it's just a little bit more of an aggressive show of force than I need. Okay. Um, I'm not somebody who gets into really heated engagements with people. I'm generally pretty good at talking them down. Sure. So. I mean, it sounds like de-escalation is probably a huge part of the job. De-escalation is the biggest part of the job. De-escalation, compassion, and relationship building, that's all it's about. Yeah. Did you know that going in, or, or like? You know, it was, it was told to me uh, in all the hiring process, but I really truly didn't understand the, the scope of it until I started working. Like, like most of the officers here, obviously I came from a more traditional security background where it's more just, you know, if there's somebody, they need to leave. Right. And that's mm. kind of all there is to it. Um, so working here taught me a whole lot about, you know, how to talk with people, how to build relationships with people. Um, going through the city for as long as I can, it's, it's, you know, it's created some very interesting perspectives. It's interesting to go out and contact people and to always remain humble and remain aware that, like, I'm way closer to being that guy than I ever will be to being the guy who pays me to kick people off of their building. Sure. I, I you know, yeah. so they truly are. Like, it's, it's all the community. It, is it, like, and I, I guess I wonder this question for you too, Alex, in terms of, yeah, sure. Company wide, but like, do you I'm just running. So I'm looking around doing security while y'all are talking to me. Sure, yeah. good. I'm not doing that, so I'm glad yeah. you're. Uh, I mean, do you run, like, do you run into compassion fatigue, or do you worry about it, or do you do things to like protect against it? I mean, just kind of like guarding your own empathy when you're 
seeing a lot of human suffering every day? Um, you know, you just sort of have to remind yourself that you're doing everything that you can. That's right. You know, obviously there's, there comes a certain point where you can't help anyone. Let's hold up here for a second. Yeah. It's good to hold up on a corner because it gives you two angles. Does that make sense? Get a sense of what's going on, yep. So I can see all the way down to the end. If I see something frantic or odd, abnormal, I, you know, that gives me, I'm pretty much covering half of the property, right. the perimeter right now, by holding up on a corner. And, and just chilling, just being part of the community, hanging out, saying hi. Hey, what's up? And this is a big property. Pretty big property, yeah. yeah. Several One of our square blocks. Complexes, yeah. 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 How many units? Do you guys have, have any sense? Four or five hundred, maybe. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. So you were saying, you remind yourself that you're doing all you can. You do all you can. There's a certain point where you can't, you can't do anything anymore. There's a certain point where it becomes up to the individuals to meet you halfway on help. And if they don't want to, that's their choice. And it's that's not right. going to stop me from reaching, reaching out sure. and doing what I can. I mean, mm. you, you develop relationships with people and you start to realize that a lot of them are out here because of decisions that they continue to make. Right. Um, and that's okay. They're people and they're members of the community and they, they're still deserving of compassion and resources. Yep. Um, yeah. Now doing security this way, when you think back on like the previous ways that you did it, mm -hmm. does it, has it changed your perspective on that too? Like does oh, that seem 100%. like- 100%, there's, there's no more effective method than this. Like the, I've, I've never had any sort of job that even encouraged me to build connections with the individuals that I'm right. contacting uh, is quite literally just, you are here, you are a person, and you need to leave. Right. Um, this is the first time I've ever been encouraged to build a relationship with them. I mean, I, I would say that at this point in my life, I know and regularly associate with more homeless people than I do non-homeless people right. on a daily basis. Because that's, I mean, I'm guessing a very large percentage of the people you're dealing with on your shift, right? I mean, especially right yeah, now I mean, you in get, terms of... You get non-homeless individuals, we get a lot of people coming up, you know, just asking for directions, sure. uh, asking for advice, asking for where certain things are, but I'd say the vast majority of, of people I'm talking with, not only are they not only are they homeless, but they're people who I've now known for years. So yeah. uh, it, it's become not so much a, a security guard and transient relationship so much as yeah. it's just sort of the game we're all playing. I, 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 I hardly even have to ask people to leave anymore. You just sure. kind of walk up and say, hey, what's up, guys? And they go, yeah, we'll be out of here in 10 minutes. Right. We go, that sounds great. Thank you very much. It's yeah. just community members respecting each other's needs. Really, at that yeah. point. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's no shortage of people ask, you know, replying, "Hey, thanks for being cool about it. Hey, we appreciate what you do." Yeah, like, right. it's it it is fully and completely just different aspects of the community doing what they do. Yep. And and yeah. like in, in a given shift, I mean, how much of your time are you responding to calls? How much of your time is sort of like more proactively patrolling? I'd say it's probably about. 15 to 20% call response, okay, 80% wow. proactive patrol. Okay. See, and that proactive... Uh, they, can get, they can get busier, but the thing about being proactive on patrol is you start to come across the issues that somebody would call about yeah. before they call about them. There's honestly no greater feeling than dispatch sending out a call and saying, hey, yeah, you got a call for society, and you're like, That's, I'm, on, I'm here. Right. I'm on site already, dealing with it. on, on, on yeah. the spot. Yeah. And, and, like, and that free time, that non-call time, allows you to build relationships. Right. Yeah. 
right? I mean, I, I would say. And, and, and when you're patrolling, are you, are you in the car? Are you on foot? Is it like a combo? You, you know, I, I generally start my shift in the car. You drive through the district and see where problem areas are, and you park and you walk. I'd spend probably a good sixty to seventy percent of my time walking. Um, you know, I, I have specific ways that I do my patrol. I don't really kick people out of places before like 1130. Yeah. Because chances are, you know, a guy sitting there smoking a cigarette at 830, if you don't talk to him, he's going to be gone at 845. Right. It's not worth yeah. making him feel aggressed. It's not worth right. making him feel like he's doing something wrong for existing. Right. Um, I generally don't start to kick people out of places until... Uh, Either they're making a mess and you know disrespecting the property, causing a safety hazard for people, um, or they you know they're inviting a large, a large amount of illegal activity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but for the most part, somebody sleeping in front of a door, I will give them until well into the night before I actually have mm -hmm. them move. Granted, I'll talk to them at the beginning of the night. I'll swing by mm -hmm. them at 8 p.m. and just sort of be like, "Hey, man, I can't have you here all night. I'm gonna check on you throughout the night." Uh, you know come yeah. later in the morning, I am going to have to ask you to move. And generally, they're gone by the time I check on them again. But if they're not, they're all very respectful about moving because I gave them ample warning that it was yep. going to occur. Yeah. Yeah. Is it like, um, Alex and I have been talking about this a lot, but you, you patrol in a lot of different districts. You have a pretty good sense of the city. Yes. I guess I just wonder, over the last two years in this job, even going further back than that mm -hmm. in other jobs, how you've seen sort of the landscape of some of these like, you know, major endemic societal problems change in Portland, whether it's like the fentanyl crisis, homelessness issues, and, you know, public safety, mental health. Like if, if, if you feel like you've seen some changes in the place. Oh, absolutely. So I, I moved up to Portland in 2018, so okay. pre-COVID. My first year of living up here, I used to just come to downtown and walk around yeah. just because, you know, play Pokemon Go right. or, you know, just go shopping. Um, then obviously the pandemic hit and I was down here for work, um, you know, doing things with the riots and stuff like that, protecting against stuff like that. And it, uh, late 2020, I was definitely able to witness uh, Portland become essentially closed down, essentially one giant yeah. homeless encampment. Right. And then since working here, uh, since 2021 and on, it's very interesting. I'll take ride-alongs around. They'll be like, "Hey, wow, you know, Portland looks great. Like, it's it's actually starting to look better." Mm -hmm. And it's it's cool to be able to be like, "Yeah, you know, I I can take credit for that." Right. We, yeah. We did. One hundred percent. We did. That. We did that. We did. Yeah. Yeah. For Port, sure. Port, downtown Portland looks as good as it does right now. Other people did it with us. Yeah, of course. But we definitely were part of. We were trying to lead the way. We I, I feel like we were that. the first ones out here saying, you know maybe if you just get to know them they would move yeah. from out in front of your business yeah if you gave them an idea of a place to go and some yeah. resources to take with them and other companies in the city are starting to catch on to that i, I think know so. northwest enforcement yep is starting to carry around resources um clean so, and safe yeah clean and safe is always they work with bybee lakes yeah yeah so <clears throat> it, yeah. it's it not only is it I mean, nice to be leading the charge but it's nice to see other organizations in Portland kind of taking up the mm -hmm. mantle and sort totally. of being like, hey, you know, this is achievable. You don't just have to Duh. be echelon to get this done. Correct. I know this will be yeah. sort of a, a guess, but how many security organizations are working in greater Portland? I mean, dozens? More than dozens. I would hundreds. say a thousand. Yeah. A thousand. 
<laughs> maybe 400 to 500, maybe a thousand. I don't, individual, so I can be, I can have a, a manager's contract. I'm on the board of the Department of Public Safety right. for security. So you, you, can, you can be a sole proprietor, PI, and take a contract. Okay. So a lot of these people are 1099 sole proprietors with their own manager certificate. Yep. So, dude, there's definitely hundreds. Wow. There's definitely hundreds. There are larger players that obviously you come across more yeah. frequently, but I, I can't tell you how yeah, often I'll meet another security guard and I'll look at their arm or their badge and just sort of be like, I don't even know what company that <laughs> is. Like, because there are just so many. There, there are just so many. Yeah. I yeah. mean, everyone needs them at this point. Yeah. And there's a lot of you know people bouncing. Yeah. And yeah. all of those are going to be private contractors. Yeah, and they have their own manager certificate. Hopefully, so it's just been interesting seeing the company grow. I mean, we've always been based here at yeah. the yards, yeah. uh, but we've expanded just from right here all the way into the point where you go into the middle of Old Town. It's sort of a an everything the light touches is my kingdom yeah. sort of situation. Yeah, we've cool. seen most of the yards. Why don't we head? Yeah, that why don't we, we, why we go go see here. some more? Yeah, so. You're, you're working days and you're handing off at night or you're working nights? Or you I swing shifts? Okay. I work nights. I work 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. Okay. You don't want to see me during the day. I'm a <laughs> zombie. That's and right. you, you like nights? Yeah. No, nights is what I've always preferred. Noah, Noah's married to the night. I am. Really? You yeah. know, it's interesting. When I was getting into security, I obviously, I started on days. Um, and then I had a few nights jobs that I had a lot of trouble staying awake for. I was even let go from a company once for falling asleep at the desk because I could not stay engaged with the job. I have never had a problem with that here. Well, because you're out and about more and I, interacting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's engaging. Yeah, I, you know, sure. it, it, I got into security to help people and I didn't really know what that meant other than like, out. I just want to be helpful. Right. Um, and so I've always gravitated towards, you know, I started with concierge type jobs. I worked at Nike. Uh, I worked in the life safety dispatch office at Intel. Yeah. And so that was helping people. Uh, but I never Put truly, a little more distance from the ground. Yeah. I never truly understood what security could do for people until getting into this job. It's really interesting. Every yep. so often people don't like people who look like this and they'll, they'll, you know, argue like, why do you why are you trying to be a wannabe cop? Why are you trying to do this? And it's it's real quite simple. I figured out a long time ago that my opportunities. Gloves? Do I have gloves? Yeah, absolutely. It's a baggie. You figured out a long time ago that you're I figured out a long time ago that my opportunities to help people are significantly greater with this job. So that could have fentanyl would. in it? A kid could grab a kid could grab that and get really messed up. Yep. Right. If I send you that, will you do the, will you do the report on that? Sure, absolutely. Baggie of fentanyl at the yards. <laughs> it was brown substance. Yeah. Baggie uh, of unknown brown substance at the yards. Probably just sugar. I'm not an investigator. Just brown sugar, bro. Yeah. Brown sugar in, in that bag. Yeah. You never know. Just a neighbor bringing a little brown sugar you over for somebody's oatmeal. Know. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt y'all. No, no, no worries. So, no, is it the same number of people on during the day, essentially? No, like, the day shift is a, lot, is a little bit smaller. I would say day shift has about nine to ten officers working. Got it. Um, the demands of day shift and night shift are a lot different. Um, they both serve the mission extremely well, but day shift is a lot more client-facing. 
you know, businesses are open. Yeah. It's a lot more. What's up, baby? How you doing? Good to see you, bro. How you been? Good, man. Remember me? Yes, sir. All right. I want to interview you soon. Yeah, I know. I know. You know. All right, brother. One love. So this guy was homeless, and we helped him get his unit here. Oh, cool. We've actually paid his first month's rent, and uh, so he's struggling. He's like, he's like a couple hundred dollars short on this month's rent. Okay. He's been doing really, really well. He's work. He's full time working, working hard. So that's what that was about. Where Where was he homeless? Here in Portland, he, Old Town. Just over right here. Wow. Yeah. So. He's, he's been living here for a lot of people. Remember James Harmon? Yeah. We did everything we could to keep him here. Iraq vet. We'll run into him eventually. Uh, I yeah. think you mentioned him to me. Yeah. Just a, 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 somebody I who's had a very hard days. time for a long time. There's no reason the VA doesn't have him. He needs to be in an institution and rate. He needs to get regulated over a three to six month period. Where, what neighborhood is he, is he staying in? Are Old he, Town. He's in Old Town. Old Town. And so whoever's patrolling Old Town knows. We know him. Knows him well. Yeah. We know him very well. I've known him for about as long as I've been with oh, the company. Yeah. When I first started, he lived here at yeah. the yards. Uh, yeah. And then I was one of the responding officers on the assault call, which got him no longer Correct. living at the yards. He thought there were snipers on the roof. He sure did. Oh, jeez. I mean, right the most, it's not And now, he's, not he's in the pit, or he's just, he, he's... He is usually around Lansley Chinese Garden Society Hotel. I cry. Yeah. Last time I saw him was on the 4th of July. He was running down Broadway with a big old knife in his hand screaming. That sounds about right. Uh, 4th of July is a rough... And this dude has yeah. free medical, bro. City. Yeah. VA. The VA will take care of him, bro. It's just like... I mean, so, I met so an individual last night over at University of Oregon who's only been homeless for four days, and he's been trying to get in contact yeah. with the VA for four days, yeah. being like, I, can't, I just lost my house. Where are I you? I don't use yeah. drugs. I'm just trying to not be a 74-year-old man who lives on the street. That's right. And the VA will not pick up their phone. No. They have put him on an indefinite wait list. So I, so I, I knew a suicidal veteran who was, is still waiting to get care. Yeah. So, so, He's waiting so, 30 more than 30 days to get care. So, somebody like... Somebody like... I gotta, I gotta check, bro. Somebody, yeah. somebody like James, who, whoever's in Old Town mm -hmm. every day and every night is probably putting eyes on, on yeah. him at some point. And, and like all the things... What are all the things that you guys have done in a situation like that? Okay, so... so Take James, you have somebody that you know is uh, suffering and also causing a lot of, uh, you know, occasionally alarm, obviously, like yeah. uh, in, in, in the neighborhood. Yeah. What, other than putting eyes on him every day, like what are the various things you're trying to do to get him help or, or the, the various things that you try? In Personally, I find with James that the best way to get him to calm down is just to have a conversation with him about whatever whatever he's going through. And I came across him uh, at a call box for an apartment that we did, and he was screaming into the call box, and I just sort of pulled him aside and said, hey, James, what's going on? And he just started telling me about mm -hmm. various people who were after him and various people who were threatening him and right. all this stuff, and I just kind of handed him a water and a cigarette and said, hey, well, you're in luck. I do security for this building, so I'll keep an eye on that. I won't let anything happen to you. Right. It's going to be okay. And his demeanor completely changed, and he was like, okay, yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate this a lot, and yeah. he wandered off. James is really smart. I've had conversations yes. with him yes. when he's more lucid throughout the years. I mean, he was studying when he, when he first came down to degree. Old Town. Yeah. He was very uh, regulated. So, where are you? Are you on Old Town tonight, or what's your? Yes, I am. Okay. And is that how frequently lately are you doing Old Town? 
generally about twice a week. Okay. So I, good, I, work, I work five days a week. They generally put me in Old Town two to three days a week. Okay. Um, Old Town is typically run by our shift coordinators. Okay. Just because the relationship building is so important. That's right. Yeah. And because it's also known as being sort of like high need area or it's it's a very high need area it's a very high engagement area okay i'm gonna end up next week i'm, I'm gonna sort of spend a full week writing about you know in a big way what what you guys do do mm -hmm. as a company and you know what's happening sitting all these other things but i think i'm gonna do it through you know spending a bunch of time with with you guys in old town and what you guys are doing in old town and, For sure. and would you say like you're so who are the four or five people in the that are sort of like, you know, that have those relationships in that town. So at night, it's myself, Austin Haynes, and Jacob Luskin. Those are our, our night shift community coordinators. And it's usually one of the three you is doing Old Town. almost always one of the three of us who is posted in Old Town. You, Jacob, or Austin? Myself, Jacob, and Austin. And, and what about days? Huh? What about days? Uh, days, it generally abides by the same rules. Um, train <laughs> um, and so like old town in particular when you say you usually you usually start uh, by driving and then like where do you where do you like if, tonight mm -hmm. like give me a I know it's different every night but a general sense of like you know where are you driving where are you spending time where where do you anchor down so I'm gonna start my patrol I I mean luckily Portland's a grid system so I quite literally yeah. go down first up second down third up yeah, fourth yeah. down sixth up Broadway yeah um, and just sort of see what the issues are um, I'll park at one of our properties that's kind of out of the way typically three-point oil uh, it's, because a it's a secluded parking lot yep. yeah. it's not a highly trafficked area and I can park my car behind a building so it's not visible from the street um, I personally have had my my vehicle broken into twice and stolen once oh while God. working here. That's right. So that's right. Um, now I'm very careful about where I park. Yeah, I bet. Um, <laughs> so I'll park there, and that's up at the top of Old Town, and that provides me uh, a very good nexus point to be able to yeah, walk yeah. the rest of it. Okay. I will typically drive till about eight. I'll park my car and I'll walk from eight till about eleven thirty. Um, and then at 11.30, 11.30 to 1, Old Town gets a little uh, a little hectic, yeah. so I get back in my car, and that way I'm a little more call responsive. Yep. Because um, yep. there's not, there's not a, it's not a great feeling when you get called for a, a dispatch call and you're 15 minutes by sure. foot from your vehicle. Yep. Um, so the, and on, on a typical night in Old Town, you might be responding with four or five calls? Old Town doesn't get super heavy. I would say Old Town is probably between five to ten calls. Uh, okay. It's generally that's still pretty steady throughout yeah, the course of a night. It's less typical security calls. It's more generally businesses that will be calling about things that are happening in the area. Sure. Yeah. Uh, the Society Hotel will call us all the time for it, things that are just happening at Third and Davis sure. because they abnormal behaviors. Yeah. Right. right. They know that's that we're going to be there before the cops. Right. And because of the location yeah. of the Society Hotel, they've. They've been vocal in a lot of this stuff because yes. it's hit them very, very significantly, right? I mean, correct. So we yeah. rely on a lot of our clients to yeah. provide us with, you know, information about what's going on in the city. That's right. Um, so typically, from about eleven thirty to two, I'll be 
vehicle-based yep. uh, responding to calls. That's also when things get hectic in other districts, so that allows me to go check in on the downtown officer, Goose Hollow, Slabtown, Pop Crest, right. Lloyd, if I need to. Yep. Um, as a community coordinator, it's my responsibility to show up whenever anyone gets into a use of force. So do me a favor, look yeah. back over your shoulder at these tents. Yep. You see anybody? One person, right? I see one person. Remember how out. many people were there when we walked by earlier? Yes. How many? Fifteen? Uh, eight? Ten? Yeah. Fifteen? Yeah. They're fifteen. They scatter. There are. They're fifteen. I counted. And, and it, so and engagement. Scattered. Sure. Engagement cameras pushes it, put, brings everything down. Right. Legally, ethically, and morally. Just right? by having people out. Just by, it's like civil rights movement. How many I racists guess. are going to come out with dogs and fire hoses and look bad on the on the video? So if you own the streets. And you, and you do engagement right, you get less activity, right? If we, we could stay here for another couple of hours and all the drug dealing would just end. Because cameras are out here. Because that, yeah. It, it's really that easy. All you gotta I've do is hire, hire a camera crew to do every, every block in the oh, city. Oh, that'd be awesome. Well, it's the uniform and this, because they don't know if you use security. Sure. I mean, the uniform, like just even talking a little bit about it, seems like it has big pros and cons, right? Like it's, it's got just as many pros yes, as cons, correct. Yeah. Yeah. honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously, people will take you a little more seriously. People will respect your, your request. And it provides a good opportunity because when somebody in this uniform is extremely personable, handing out resources, uh, you know, I, I always talk to people in the city your, your contacts need to be casual, compassionate, and confident. Right. Yeah, and I so, like that. Casual, confident. Three C's. Yeah. Exactly. Dude, that's good, bro. And so people see somebody that's dressed cool. like this being that way, and it sort of disarms them. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we, we're, we're what I like to refer to as cop-like objects. Sure. And people are not a big fan of cop-like objects. Right. Correct. Um, Correct. And you, you were you were also saying like the relationships with law enforcement have. Yeah, they've come and gone. Uh, when I first started, law yeah. enforcement was not a super huge fan of us because they were strapped and they were stressed and they were upset that we were taking their cake. Right. Uh, and nowadays, the cops show up and they're almost relieved to see us there. Yeah, yeah. They show up and they go, oh, cool. You know, have you already checked all the doors? Did you clear it already? Have you made sure that, you know, you called the alarm company? You got the owner on the way? All right, right cool. Thank you for we're doing out of here. 75% of our job. Here's yep. a CAD number. We're going to go to where the shooting is going to be. Correct, right. yeah. Because yeah. You know, they got a lot to do. The and police you're get dogged on a lot in this city for they not do. coming to stuff. They do. But quite honestly, 90% of the things you call the police for, you don't actually need law enforcement for. Yeah. Security is perfectly legally and able to handle that situation. Right. The police are really only necessary when you need uh, you know, a, a, a mobilized yeah. response from the state. Yep. Um, Correct. You know. Yeah. yeah. Pretty much if somebody's rights need to be taken away, I'd like the state to do it. <laughs> so it's so, <laughs> so their it's, freedom of movement or their freedom yeah, to life, exactly. I'd like the state to do that. But right. like, and they're, other and than that, that, they're, they're specifically qualified to do that. Yeah. Other so, than that, so, though, I mean, so I am it, perfectly it, capable of asking a guy to please leave a convenience store yeah. and stop throwing things. Right. Um, so in a given week, you're not calling the police very often. I, I mean, call if, there, the if there's police, an OD, you're calling for an ambulance? I call medical if there's an OD. I call the police if we take somebody into custody. Obviously, we're required. There was a gentleman that pulled a firearm the other day. <laughs> kind yes. of. 
Uh, yeah, there was I a mean, there was a, a man. This was a couple days ago. On the Fourth of July, yeah. there was a dude who had a had a firearm, discharging it into the street, and being very aggressive with myself and Austin. Um, and I'm on the phone with the police, with my firearm drawn to low ready, getting behind cover, listening to. Please yeah. do not hang up. This is the 911 emergency yeah, line. Yeah, Your yeah. call is very important to us. Um, and then when they finally did pick up, I gave them all the information and I actually had to hear the dispatcher go, yeah, well, we're on high priority calls only right now, so I don't have anyone I can assign to this call. And I'm just sort of like, there's a man with a firearm. Shooting. Shooting the ground. In Old Town. This and they didn't have anybody? Yeah. It took, it took a good five minutes for the call to be assigned and then another five minutes for the police to show up. By the time they did, the individual was off-site, and all they did was grill me about whether or not I actually saw him shoot the firearm versus just heard him shoot the firearm. Wow. Um, and then I gave them... But y'all were uh, able to de-escalate the situation? Yeah, we were able to get him to walk away um, and give the police last known travel, so yeah. that was good. It's, I mean, it does make me think about, like, sort of your own personal safety in the job. I mean... So your car's been broken into twice, stolen yeah. once, mm -hmm. gun pulled on you a few days ago. Yeah. Like how, how often does that stuff happen? Not very often. Not often enough for it to not be worth the amount of help I get to give people. I, I tell people when they start out at this job that they need to find their why. They need to find the reason why they're out here doing this because otherwise it will burn you out. Otherwise you yeah. will eventually be moving a dude who's covered in shit who's throwing needles at you oh and you'll be moving him and being real nice and you'll start to think to yourself, hey, why don't I serve food at Olive Garden? Sure. Um, and you have to have an answer to that question. You yeah. have to develop a reason of like, why is this worth it? Right. And as long as you have that reason for why it's worth it, this job remains worth all, yeah. of, the, all of the dumb stuff. Plus, then you have casual nights and you get to appreciate the spooky nights. Sure. There's, there's nothing nicer than a slow night, and you're like, oh, that's cool. Somebody pulled a gun on me yesterday, so <laughs> right. I will take, I'll take the, it. I'll take yes. it. Yes. I mean, are, are the casual nights rare, or, or they're... So what I mean, by a, town, what I mean by a casual night is nobody tried to hurt me. Right. Um, I, a casual night mm -hmm. for me is walking around, getting to know people, catching up with people who I haven't seen if I haven't been in that district for a while, yeah. uh, seeing what's changed, seeing what dynamics on the street have changed. I really appreciate nights where I just get to engage with the community. Sure. Go stop by, um, talk to James, talk to Yeah, him. on yeah. nights where I have to do cop shit, that's less fun. Sure. I'm not yeah. a cop. I would like the cops to do cop shit. We're taking shit. up a lot of your time, man. You're let's good. let's head back. All right. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I wanted him to get on patrol. For sure. Thing. Yeah, do your thing. You'll have plenty what? of time to talk to people, I promise. I know, I know. That's great. What's what's your schedule? Like, what nights do you work? I work Friday through Tuesday. Friday through and Tuesday. And sometimes Wednesdays if there's a call out. <laughs> and that's today? No, today is a Monday. Today I'm scheduled. Okay. <laughs> uh, so usually Friday to Tuesday. Yeah. And when do you figure out what district you're working in? The schedule gets published the week ahead of time. And then plus I'm a community coordinator, so I have access to the schedule a couple weeks out. Got it. Yeah. So this is a really interesting spot, you know, um, let's just stop and talk about it for a second. So, yeah, you know the lady who has one arm yeah, in Old Alicia. Town? Well, I, yeah, I wasn't going to name her, but yeah. Of course you know her name. So, she lost her arm because she overdosed and fell asleep here at these treks. And no one was awake. Everyone was pretty much passed out. And a train came and took her arm off. 
Oh my goodness. And this lady, that was How like long was three this? years ago maybe. Wow, that was before I started. Yeah, and you know, she's still walking around Old Town living in a tent, man. Like, mm -hmm. and I this, saw her yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Prior to this, she was actually more normalized. So this caused, this was a really traumatic incident, obviously. Yep. There's some mental health things, because we saw her behavior change from that incident, and she's still living here in Old Town. Wow. And you saw and you saw her on patrol. I spoke with her yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I see her regularly. She's been with the same guy for like four years, yeah. maybe. Yeah. She and she and her boyfriend are still together. They still live in. They actually live in a tent down under that yep. bridge right down there. That's wow. right. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, how many people do you think are are homeless right now in Old Town? I couldn't give you an estimation. It's over a hundred. Yeah. Oh, easily. And you it's know, and, well you, over and you probably know many of them. By name. By name. Absolutely. Yeah. I would say there's around 80 to 100 tents. When we got when we came into Old Town, there were about 400 to 450 tents. Wow. And I would assume 1.25 occupants per tent. Yeah. So, you know, Old Town was historically um, sheltering 15% of the total homeless population of Oregon. Okay. It's kind of a neighborhood. Wow. Okay. And so right Every now, there's probably like 80 that. to yep. 100 when tents. Okay. On average. Yep. 80 to 100. So it's decreased significantly, yeah. but... But it's still a high concentration. It's very high concentration. Yeah. Yeah. It's very high concentration. Yeah. We'll do what we well, can. You do what we can. These aren't even our properties, man. Sure. That's not our property. Right. This isn't our property. But, you know, we do what we can. We offer sheltering. We work with nonprofits. Sure. So. And also, I'm guessing, like, your clients understand that by working here, you're reducing some of the issues that they might might end up dealing Correct. with. I would, I would say that very, even when it's not on our property, uh, people are generally happy to see us out giving resources and providing a presence. Yeah. Yeah. We obviously don't provide security for properties that aren't yeah, ours, exactly. but, but I like to think we provide security for the community in general, totally. just yeah. by being around. Yeah, because yeah, engagement. It's yeah. about, as engagement increases, criminal activity decreases. Yeah. So, well, well, that means you have more work to do. Absolutely. I know we don't but, have a lot of time. Yeah, You've got to get on patrol, bro. It's a pleasure yeah, to meet both of you guys. Likewise. You know you're my favorite. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Hopefully you've met him before. Yeah, just a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Just a couple of times. We're walking back with you. All right. Well, no, no I'm going to, Alex has it so he can text it to you, or maybe you can link us up with a text yeah. and contact. Okay, yes. Yeah. And that way I can figure Easy. out what your schedule is Not uh, next week. Absolutely. Um, I'm happy can, to have you with me. We can link up. All right. Love it. Wonderful. It'll especially be like, you know, to, to do some of those stretches where you're, you know, starting out in the car, walking mm -hmm. around with you, and, and honestly, next week it will be, it's just like me and a notebook hanging out. Right so, on. Yeah, I'll walk with you. Have a good night, you guys. Take care, guys.